0: Do you love narrative podcasts but don't want to listen to ads? Cast Media is now offering ad-free listening with a Cast subscription, Cast Plus. You get ad-free access to not only Scoundrel, history's forgotten villains, but also great shows like Opportunist, Vigilante, Good Cult, Nighty Night, Media Circus, and their new show, Lost in Panama. Along with ad-free listening, Cast Plus also includes bonus episodes and inside looks into making the shows, and this is just for Cast Plus subscribers. Find out more by going to castmedia.com slash cast plus. That's castmedia.com slash K-A-S-T-P-L-U-S. Yes. Let me tell you a story. It's 1645, Manning Tree in Essex in England. Two men warn themselves by a fire in a barn that's been retrofitted to hold more than just livestock. It holds prisoners.
1: These two men are supposed to ensure their prisoner doesn't escape, and if possible, obtain a confession. Unfortunately, this prisoner is more strong-willed than they had anticipated. Elizabeth Clark will not confess. The locals here in Manningtree have decided to call in the big guns. They hear footsteps. The door opens and two more men step inside. They
0: are John Stern and Matthew Hopkins, witch hunters. Stern is not a man to be reckoned with on any day of the week, particularly when it comes to the subject of witch hunting. But the real force in this duo is Matthew Hopkins, better known by the moniker he will take later on, the Witchfinder General.
1: Hopkins insists on removing Elizabeth Clark from the cell and taking her to the nearby Thorn Inn, where they will be better equipped to interrogate her. She protests. She has no desire to go with these two strangers. It was bad enough with the local witch hunters, but Hopkins' brutal reputation precedes him. The 80-year-old Elizabeth Clark has already been through quite an ordeal, being accused by her neighbors of cursing the local tailor's wife and kept here for days. She's frail, impoverished, and only has one leg. She doesn't have the strength to fight back against two grown men. Not right now.
0: We don't know what goes on in the Thorn Inn over the ensuing several days. Torture is ostensibly illegal in England, but witches create a different circumstance entirely. After all, when the immortal souls of the people are at stake, it only seems fair to subject these subjects to more scrutiny, as they described it. What was that scrutiny? Beatings, starvation, sleep deprivation.
1: In time, Hopkins and Stern get what they came for. They claim to witness Elizabeth Clark summoning several different familiars, devilish creatures who appear in animal form. Hopkins describes seeing the following, appear to try and help Elizabeth.
0: A white dog named Jarmana, a greyhound named Vinegar Tom, who also turned into a headless four-year-old boy at one point. How Hopkins manages to suss out the demon boy's official age is a mystery.
1: A polecat named News. A black rabbit named Sack and Sugar.
0: And a series of other demons, devils, and monsters named but not described. Elemazer, Piewhacket, Peckin' the Crown, Grizzle Greedy Gut.
1: Yes, it seems that Elizabeth has truly been up to no good, consorting with the devil in Essex. But at least Hopkins and Stern have put a stop to it, and have gotten names from Elizabeth of other witches in town, who brought her into witchcraft in the first place.
0: At least... That's what Hopkins and Stern would have us believe. For her honesty, Elizabeth is tried as a witch at the Chelmsford Assizes and hanged shortly after. Her confession leads to the arrest, imprisonment, and or execution of 22 other women. And this is just the beginning. Hopkins and Stern are merely kicking off what will be one of the most prolific witch hunting careers in Western history, but Does Hopkins even believe in witchcraft, or is he simply a sadist, an opportunist, and a murderer, using the frenzy around witchcraft to feed his twisted desires?
1: History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history. The lesser-known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of myths and legends and from cast media, this is Scoundrel. History's Forgotten Villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser.
0: Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. This week, we're bringing you the story of Matthew Hopkins, the Witchfinder General. Between 1644 and 1647, Hopkins and his partner John Stern sent more people to the gallows for witchcraft in England than all other witch hunters had in the previous 160 years. With dubious methods and rumors of bribery and graft, levying taxes on the towns he helped, Hopkins' reputation was both terrifying and sordid. And the weirdest part of all is that Hopkins had no real qualifications or authority. He was many things. A tavern owner, a former lawyer. But to the people he hurt and to history, he will always be the Witchfinder General.
1: But why did he do it? Did he really truly believe that he was ridding the world of evil? Or was he just simply that murderous opportunist? That's what we aim to find out today. How one man took the superstition and fear of a country and warped it with corruption, greed, and violence.
0: Matthew Hopkins, like most people, isn't born evil. But everything he experiences in his childhood certainly works to enforce the beliefs he will come to be known by. Because when he's born in Wenham, in Suffolk, in 1620 the world he's born into is a world on the edge. It's on the edge of superstition. The man on the throne of England, King James I, survives a shipwreck in 1589 and becomes convinced that the disaster was an attempt on his life by demon-controlled witches. And it's not just that King James I believes in witches. He literally wrote the book on them, publishing Demonology in 1597.
1: And the fastest growing religious sect in England at the time Puritanism, believes that not only is Satan alive, but that he roams the world of the living freely, looking for souls to corrupt and lives to destroy. The historical record of Matthew's early life is pretty slim, but we know that for young Matthew, raised by his Puritan minister, Father James, it is a life dripping with religious zeal, fanaticism, and fear. James is not a warm man, but he is a pious one, and he instills in his children the same fear of God and Satan that he has. It's also a world on the edge of war. As an adult,
0: Matthew Hopkins is living through what history will know as the First English Civil War, from 1642 to 1646. Now, there are shows that have done entire seasons on this time in English history, but we'll just give you the bullet points so you can understand what Matthew Hopkins is living through. After years of fighting the Bishop's War against Scotland, 1640 sees the Scots occupying Northern England, and the cost of the war forces King Charles I to call a new parliament to raise taxes. This long parliament, as it's known, which exists for 20 years, is meant to raise those taxes, but instead, they fight with King Charles, which leads to something called the Great Remonstrance, where parliament sends him a list of grievances.
1: Now, kings usually don't like receiving lists of grievances from their subjects, and King Charles I is no different. So in 1642, a now adult Matthew Hopkins watches as the king decides to crush parliament in the first English civil war. The war is hard on England. Local courts are suspended. Law and order breaks down. And in its place, Hopkins witnesses crime, famine and extreme poverty, especially in eastern England, where he's from.
0: And considering the fact that the East is heavily Puritan and supporters of Parliament over the King in this conflict, things do not go well over there. The stress consumes the people in this region. They know the King will come down on them for their support of Parliament, but they don't know when. With civil war tearing the country apart, with fuel and food shortages and blood in the streets, the people do turn to their faith for some level of comfort and to try to make sense of the chaos all around them. When looking at what's going on in Matthew Hopkins' life at the time, you can see how the people would believe that the devil and his minions could be figures to blame. There is no sense to be made out of war, especially civil war. And without any real concrete explanation for their hardships and suffering, not one that makes sense to an average person just trying to survive, their minds might have searched for a reason, hungered for it. But sometimes, faith can morph into something else. Superstition fear, and paranoia can creep in.
1: But what about Matthew himself? Does he succumb to the paranoia pervading the zeitgeist of his time? It's hard for us to say, as there are little to no authentic records of Hopkins' early life, but we can use context clues to make some guesses. He was not an uneducated man by many accounts, unconfirmed though they may be. He went to Amsterdam to study as a young man and may have even practiced law. He was also relatively well off economically, as his father made quite the small fortune from his ministry.
0: So while we don't know the ins and outs of Matthew Hopkins' childhood psyche, we know he had access and privilege that many others did not have. And yet, he chose to torture and kill, and he made a fortune of his own from it. Sir Harbottle Grimston is one of the wealthiest men in Manningtree, in the county of Essex, He has a vast fortune, built on land and livestock, land that, at the time of the story, Matthew Hopkins appears to have bought his new home on.
1: But for several years now, since about 1640, something has been plaguing his livestock. Sir Grimston has called on farmers, veterinarians, doctors and scientists to try and explain what's killing his animals. But nobody has an answer, and nobody can stop them from dying it doesn't take long for the locals to draw their own conclusions. Witches have cursed their lord. Rumors fly
0: in Essex about Sir Grimston and his cursed cattle and accusations abound. There are plenty of people in the area disliked by the locals. And if there's one thing we've learned about witch hunts through the years, it's that the paranoia surrounding them is often taken advantage of by opportunists looking to take out their enemies or, in Matthew Hopkins' case, to make a quick buck. Now, In addition to his childhood, we don't know much about Hopkins' adult life before his time as Witchfinder General. It's a simple fact that there just isn't much in the way of official records on him. In place of facts, we have rumors. At this point in our story, though, we're not even sure what profession Matthew Hopkins has. But we do know what he becomes.
1: Around this time, Hopkins meets John Stern, a man 10 years his senior who has been a practicing witch hunter in the eastern countryside for some time and he takes Hopkins on as his assistant. Not much is known about exactly what kind of training Hopkins receives from Stern or what kind of training Stern has to begin with, but it isn't long before the duo begins hunting witches in tandem. This seems to be a common theme for some of the scoundrels we cover here. It's always a figure shrouded in mystery, someone with fantastical claims, but very little evidence to back them up. Of course, with men like Hopkins having lived so long ago, It's possible that his court records and diplomas were simply lost to the ravages of time.
0: It's also possible that he's a devious con man who lies as easily as he breathes, using religion, faith, and fervor to mask his selfish intentions. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here.
1: If you're enjoying Scoundrel History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review.
0: Also, we'd love your feedback.
1: Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks.
0: You can listen to Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, ad-free on Amazon Music. Nevertheless, in 1645, when a lynch mob of local peasants settled their suspicions on an elderly woman named Elizabeth Clark, who you may remember from our opening a few moments ago, and Sir Grimston, being the good Christian man he is, recommends her for trial, Hopkins sees his opportunity.
1: A fire stokes at the Thorn Inn. Matthew Hopkins and John Stern have been torturing 80-year-old Elizabeth Clark for days now.
0: We've already told you what happens to Elizabeth at this inn. At least, we've told you everything we know. But Hopkins and Stern managed to procure a confession from Elizabeth as she admits to poisoning Sir Grimston's livestock with magic she learned from the devil in exchange for the torture to stop.
1: Unfortunately for Elizabeth, there is no mercy for witches in 1645 England. She is sent to trial where she is found guilty, but only after providing Hopkins and Stern with the names of five other suspected witches. Elizabeth hopes that by exposing these other women, her life will be spared.
0: She is sentenced to death and will be hanged in the coming months. This may be the end for Elizabeth Clark, but it's just the beginning for John Stern and Matthew Hopkins.
1: The trial for Elizabeth Clark garners lots of attention, and by the time it's over, Stern and Hopkins are celebrities of a kind. Nobody cares what they did to get a confession from Elizabeth Clark. All they care about is that they got one. They caught a real, live witch, and they've got the names of five others to go hunt down next. Following the trial...
0: Stern and Hopkins are summoned by the Earl of Hardwick to discuss that very subject. A religious man caught up in the witch craze in his own right, the Earl gives Stern a warrant to hunt down more witches in the area, and Hopkins too, by nature of being his assistant.
1: And while Hopkins may have been all right with this power dynamic to date, his relationship with Stern is about to reverse polarity in dramatic fashion. Stern and Hopkins conduct inquiries on the women that Elizabeth named in her interrogation and trial...
0: Nobody questions the men's methods. After all, they are battling the devil, aren't they? The five women they inquire about give up more names, and in all, our witch hunters apprehend and jail 23 women.
1: It's full-on panic here in Manningtree. Nehemiah Wallington, a Puritan writer, pens the lurid information uncovered by Stern and in Hopkins' interrogation of these suspected witches. One of the most salacious accounts is that of Rebecca West, a young woman accused of consorting with the devil along with her mother, Anne.
0: Rebecca is subjected to the same treatment as Elizabeth Clark and all the other women, until she finally confesses that she was forced into a sexual relationship with the devil by her witchcraft-practicing mother, Anne, and that only her mother's death could save her from the unholy contract she had been bartered into. And Anne, the mother, is hanged to free her daughter from the deal with the devil. By the end of this particular investigation, if you can call it that, 17 other women are hanged as well. Four more women die while incarcerated by Stern and Hopkins. Only Rebecca West survives. Whether the devil honors the clause in his contract to free her in exchange for her mother's execution, we can only wonder.
1: We don't have to wonder what Matthew Hopkins thinks. He's pretty pleased with himself. A perfect score so far, Hopkins 23, witches zero. He even decides to start going by a new nickname. It's not an official title or anything, but hey, it sounds good. So he spreads the word around the countryside that he will now go by the moniker that will come to define him in history, the Witchfinder General.
0: Enjoying his newfound celebrity and hungry for more fame and fortune, Hopkins takes Stern West, looking for more witches to hunt and kill. And this would turn the English countryside into an inferno. Back in 1643, before Hopkins and Stern really made it big, the Earl of Manchester, Edward Montague, is pretty worried about idolatry, heresy, and superstition. Basically, he doesn't like anything that wasn't explicitly Puritan.
1: So he enlists the help of a man named William Dowsing to make sure that Puritanism is the law of the land at least in the East. Dowsing's idea of how to go about this is completely depraved.
0: Dowsing and his men burned non-Puritan churches, vandalized icons and idols, murder and maim, all in the name of encouraging Puritan extremism. It even gets so bad that Oliver Cromwell, one of the most influential politicians in Parliament at the time, and in English history, but that's another show, has to step in, stripping Dowsing of his title and power. And if Oliver Cromwell thinks you've gone too far, that's something. But by this point, it's too late.
1: The towns and villages of Suffolk are either completely destroyed by Dowsing's hand, or their people are pulled into his extremist fervor. But this is not a story about William Dowsing. It's about Matthew Hopkins and how he swoops in to fill the void that Dowsing leaves.
0: Riding high off the success in Manning Tree the Witchfinder General, Hopkins, and Stern decided to take their show on the road, following almost precisely the swath of terror that Dowsing cut across the countryside and offering their services as witch hunters and demon fighters to the starved, beaten, and terrified local population. And they made a fortune off of it.
1: Hopkins and Stern's M.O. was simple. Set up camp near one of the towns or villages still reeling from Dowsing's work, where the people were ready and willing to accept any kind of answer for why their lives had taken such a turn, and then wait to be invited in. That's the wildest and perhaps most depressing part of this story. Hopkins and Stern never forced their services on any of these places, never coerced or persuaded these people to inform on their neighbors or attack each other.
0: They always invited them in welcomed them, encouraged them. Let's take a moment to think about this and not necessarily in the easy, oh my gosh, how could these people do such a thing way. Let's look at how insidious this psychology is. We've already discussed the privilege that Matthew Hopkins was raised in. Despite the tumultuous world he saw, he was insulated from it with his wealth and education. That is to say, he knows better. He knows how easily people can fall into superstition and fear. And he takes advantage of it, waiting for the precisely right moment to harness that fear and be invited in as a hero and take advantage of it. They did.
1: For their services, Hopkins and Stearns reportedly charge anywhere between six and 23 pounds per village, which translates to an average of 5,000 pounds today. But this figure is even more ludicrous when you consider that the average wage for an English person in 1645 is around six pence per day. For context, this is equivalent to paying a total stranger over three months' salary to interrogate, torture, and murder your family members and neighbors.
0: It's estimated that Hopkins alone earned well over 1,000 pounds in his roughly two-year career as Witchfinder General, around 282,000 pounds today. So. What did these people get in exchange for their money?
1: Capitalizing on the fear within whatever village or town they're in, the men gather names of possible witches and interrogate them, using the same tactics they used with Elizabeth Clark. Though in truth, these are imaginative men, and they are always finding new ways to extract the demonic truth from their victims.
0: Hopkins starves his suspects and keeps them awake for days on end until they are so delirious that they'll confess to just about anything Honestly, when we think about the myriad demonic familiars that Elizabeth Clark saw in this context, it's not hard to imagine that maybe she really was seeing them. After all, if someone keeps you awake for four or five days in a row, you might start seeing demon rabbits too.
1: He forces his suspects and detainees to exercise until they collapse, like he does to vicar John Lowes in Bury St. Edmunds in 1645, who is forced to run until he either confesses or dies. Hopkins also employs some of the methods you might've heard from other witch hunt tales, like dunking, or as it's called in its time, witch swimming.
0: The idea is as simple as it is cruel. Purposefully try to drown the suspected witch in the nearest local body of water. If they sink to the bottom, they are innocent, free from demonic influence. Of course, the subject likely doesn't survive the attempts to pull them from the water, but if they should drown, at least their families can bury them with the peace that their souls are pure if they float or attempt to swim in any way, Hopkins points to it as a pretty clear sign that the accused is calling upon their demonic powers to survive the ordeal.
1: It's important to note that this witch swimming, even in 1645, has been a pretty roundly discredited method for about 400 years, which begs the question, why do people go along with it? Dozens of generations grew up and died knowing it was a bogus excuse for torture and yet they allow Hopkins and Stern to drown their wives, their daughters, their mothers. And
0: their brutality doesn't stop there, nor does it end with just one person at a time. Remember John Lowes, the vicar who Hopkins forced to run until he collapsed? He wasn't the only victim in that small town. By the end of Hopkins and Stern's investigation in Bury St. Edmunds, they arrest 100 men and women, ready to send them to the gallows,
1: It's actually such an incredibly high number that Parliament gets wind of things. and has to intervene, sending their own investigators to place a check on Hopkins and Stern. After Parliament's independent investigation, 82 suspected witches are set free, leaving Hopkins with just 18.
0: But on August 27th, 1645, All of them are hanged nonetheless, making it the biggest mass execution for witchcraft in the 1,000 some odd year history of England. The news turns some heads in the country and not all that attention is positive for Hopkins and Stern. The massacre, combined with their archaic methods, has begun to draw concern, but not enough to save those 18 lives. Hopkins and Stern didn't stay for the execution. They rode off the night before, already gone by the time their victims were led to the gallows.
1: The gallows, the part they never stay to watch. Everywhere these two men go, they tear a community apart, condemn its people to death, and then escape into the night with their hard-earned coin. Is it squeamishness? Are they so pious and reverent that they cannot bear to watch? Or is it guilt that drives them away? Hopkins may be willing to condemn these people, but is he simply unwilling to stand and bear the witness to the massacres he orchestrates? lest he actually be forced to confront his own conscience?
0: In the end, does it matter? There's another element to this whole sordid story that we need to talk about. Across history, we have seen fear, hardship, tragedy, and paranoia lead to the othering of certain communities. People blame those that are different from them because it's easier to comprehend a group of people as the source of one's suffering than to wrestle with deep-seated historical or systemic issues or simply the chaos of existence.
1: And we've seen it over and over across the globe. But here, we don't see Hopkins prosecute one ethnic or religious group in particular. He persecutes women almost exclusively.
0: Of course, this isn't to discount Hopkins' violence toward the men he accused of witchcraft. In all, 20 men are hanged for witchcraft, three of them along with their wives. But in that same time frame, Hopkins sends 200 women to the gallows. We don't know how Matthew Hopkins feels about women. I mean, actions speak louder than words, and those actions are screaming. But we know that he at least purported to believe that the devil was prowling around, looking for people to corrupt, and according to some Puritan ministers at the time, the devil's favorite people to use were women. Maybe he agreed. Maybe he saw a societal prejudice that he could exploit to make money. We don't know.
1: September. 1645, the port town of Ipswich in Suffolk. Stern and Hopkins have ridden into town and been offered lodging, food, and their nominal fee to root out the evil in this place. They find it in a young woman named Mary Lakeland.
0: Mary stands accused of several crimes against man and God, all of which she confesses to while under the watch of England's Witchfinder General, to nobody's surprise. She confesses to making a pact with the devil, to have employed his demons and familiars to injure and kill a number of people, including her neighbors, their children, and her late husband. But Mary Lakeland is different from all the other victims of John Stern and Matthew Hopkins because she hasn't just committed the crime of witchcraft. She's also confessed to the specific crime of killing her husband, which English law calls petty treason. And while hanging is the punishment for witchcraft, petty treason comes with a different sentence, burning at the stake.
1: Hopkins doesn't stay for this execution either. Mary is the last person who will ever be executed in Ipswich for witchcraft and one of the last people in England who will ever be burned at the stake as punishment for a crime. But Mary's death, while gruesome and wholly unnecessary, does prove to be one of the final nails in Hopkins' witch-hunting coffin. Ever since the massacre at Bury St. Edmunds, the stories and attitudes surrounding Hopkins and Stern have started to turn, and Parliament has been keeping a close eye on the men as they ravage the countryside looking for witches. He doesn't know it yet, but Mary Lakeland will be the end of the Witchfinder General.
0: By the end of 1645, England is a different place. The English Civil War that has ravaged the country, and especially ravaged the East where Hopkins works, is coming to an end. King Charles I loses to parliamentary forces. And while he avoids capture, his army is decimated. This is not good news for Matthew Hopkins and John Stern. The king is one of the few people left who support their warrant to rid the east of witches. And since the massacre at Bury St. Edmunds, the members of Parliament have begun to wonder if Hopkins is more trouble than he's worth.
1: And it's not just Parliament. Public opinion is turning against Hopkins as well. John Gall, a Puritan cleric, is disgusted with what he's heard about Hopkins and Stern and their barbaric tactics. Gall is a self-professed skeptic when it comes to witchcraft. At least, what would pass for a skeptic of his time. Gall accepts that witchcraft exists, but he takes a legalistic approach to rooting it out. That means a stricter standard of evidence in witchcraft trials, a disregard for the personal, unsubstantiated testimonies of witnesses, and a total abandonment of the torturous methods that Hopkins uses. In
0: 1646, he publishes his ideas in a book called Select Cases of Conscience Touching Witches and Witchcraft. In it, he cites several of Hopkins' cases, using the very same events that made him famous to make him infamous. He cites Mary Lakeland, John Lowe's, and the massacre at Bury St. Edmunds, picking out Hopkins' specific methods like witch swimming and sleep deprivation as both ineffective and inhumane. Hopkins responds to the criticism by writing Gall a letter, threatening that if he keeps writing about him, he might just have to go looking for witches in Gall's neighborhood. And there's no telling who in his family may be found consorting with the devil.
1: It's like something straight out of a mafia movie. Hopkins is challenged for the first time in his witch-hunting career, and he responds by threatening to report his critic as a witch. It's almost an admission of guilt in itself that the whole thing is bogus, and the people are starting to notice. With the first English Civil War over and the royal forces defeated, the famine, panic, and tragedy that Hopkins used to hold these villages and towns in fear is quickly falling to the wayside. Folks aren't as desperate anymore. And with that desperation fading, they're starting to see Hopkins for what he is, a charlatan.
0: Matthew Hopkins and John Stern are summoned to parliament, accused of torture, and without the support of public opinion, he has no answer. By 1646, Hopkins has lost all credibility. He is both a loathsome figure and a laughingstock. In 1647, with nowhere else to go, Hopkins discards his title of Witchfinder General and retires back to his home in Manningtree. His witch hunting career lasts just 18 months.
1: And yet he still manages to kill over 200 people. And despite being pretty universally hated, he still has support among the most extreme religious fanatics. He writes a book in 1647, The Discovery of Witches. Which is a huge hit in the American colonies and will go on to inform and influence another infamous period, the Salem witch trials of 1692. And he has amassed enough of a fortune to live off for the rest of his life.
0: He won't need much, as it turns out, because in that same year, in August 1647, at the age of just 27, Matthew Hopkins dies at his home of tuberculosis. Rumors abound in the ensuing years that Hopkins was actually tried and executed for witchcraft using the same cruel methods that he used on others. But in truth, his death was quiet and empty.
1: So what do we take away from this story? What is the legacy that Matthew Hopkins, Witchfinder General, leaves behind?
0: One of the interesting things about Matthew Hopkins is that there is so much about what he did and so little about who he was. He kept his true self hidden from the world. It's difficult to know what really motivated his behavior, but we can take a guess. We can think about what it was like growing up in an age of such instability, superstition, and fear. We can imagine the paranoia that living in a reality like this creates.
1: England is the home of Blackstone's ratio, the idea that it's better to let 10 guilty persons go free than to let one innocent person suffer. And yet, it seems that in his fear and paranoia, Matthew Hopkins came to believe in the inverse, Better to kill 10 innocent women than let one witch go free. Maybe he believed that with the soul of a country at stake, his position wasn't just defensible, but right.
0: Or we can think about the numerous voices of dissent and criticism that Hopkins faced, especially later on in his career. We can think about the methods he engaged in, the drownings, the torture, the coercion, all of which were already discredited and very much illegal in this time, but which he used anyway to procure the outcomes that he deemed acceptable. We can think of the men and women who never came home to their families because he condemned them to die and then left before their executions with the cumulative wealth of an entire community in his pocket.
1: The truth of this story likely lies somewhere between these two extremes. And that makes Hopkins even worse. It means that he knew better and yet he chose to be evil. He had every opportunity to behave differently and he chose to succumb to his own fear and to wield it as a cudgel Against the very people he claimed to want to save. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson.
0: Today's episode was written by Jeremy Novick. It's produced by DJ Lubell, edited and sound designed by Anton Doty, and mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell.
1: Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast.
0: Hey everyone. Jason and Carissa here.
1: If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review.
0: Also, we'd love your feedback.
1: Go to castmedia.com scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks.